Let's start with the troubles at the border now. People hopping across the border to get some gas or groceries, coming back and getting walloped with fines for doing it. Now, this all started when both levels of government said, it's okay, it's okay to go across the border for a short trip to get some gas, to get some food. Here's Solicitor General Mike Farnworth saying, it's okay, just go ahead. Here's what he said. It will allow people to go across the border uh, for essential goods, in particular gasoline, and to be able to come across uh, back into Canada without that uh, PCR test. Go ahead and cross the border. Go get your gas. Go get your groceries. It's no problem. You won't need that test to do it. Here's Federal Minister of Emergency Preparedness, Bill Blair, saying the same thing. Have a listen. It does not include family trips, vacations, or, 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 or other types of uh, tourist activity. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that's fine. Don't go down there on a vacay. But if you're going down there to get some gas or some groceries, it's okay. You won't need that negative test going back. Now we're hearing from lots of people who did precisely what the government said it's okay to do, and they get hammered with huge fines and penalties for doing it. Let's check in with Len Saunders now, immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Len. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. So I find this extraordinary. This sounds like just a monumental government screw-up. What are you hearing about this? Well, absolutely. This is classic what's been going on for a year and a half at the U.S.-Canada border. You know, first it was a lack of cooperation between the two federal governments. Now you have a lack of cooperation between the provincial and the federal governments. I'm shocked that these CBSA officers, who probably heard the news over the weekend, just like you did and I did living in Washington State and countless Canadians, where they said, we're making these emergency provisions. If you go down for essential services, you're fine, gas and, and food. I even went by one of our local gas stations yesterday morning at 8 o'clock, and there was a massive Suburban with BC license plates. And I thought, okay, people are listening. They're taking advantage of this new you know, cross-border exemption before next Tuesday to yeah. come down and fill up down here and not do it up in BC. And then you start hearing all these stories of people being fined $5,700. All that those officers should have done is read the news and maybe (laughs) called their boss in Ottawa and said, these poor Canadians who can only get 30 liters of gas, they're coming back. Is that okay? Meanwhile, they just slap the fine, tell them to to isolate or, or do their, you know, 14 days, whatever, quarantine. Oh, you got to isolate too. You get a fine and you got to isolate as well. I'm, you know, it, Is that right? it's, it's it, until you get the COVID test back. Nobody yeah, in Lord. their right mind will come down over the border until there's some sort of cooperation between the federal and the provincial government. Okay. And so it's, you know, you know, what should I say? I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised what, yeah. what happened yesterday. Yeah. Okay, well, let's listen to one woman's story of how this happened to her. This is Marlene Jones, and she called in yesterday to the Jazz Joe Hall show to describe what happened to her. Now, this runs about a minute. Now, have a listen to her saga here. Len, and then I'll get your, uh, your thoughts on the other side of this. Have a listen. So I woke up this morning, and I saw on the news that if you lived in an area that was affected, or if you lived in South Surrey or Delta, Bill Blair even said to go across the line into Point Roberts and get gas. So I thought, okay, I'm retired. I'm going to go across the line and get some gas and save the gas in Canada for some of the folks that have to commute. Mm -hmm. I was in the U.S. for 10 minutes. Uh, When I came back, I was detained by CBSA. 
and what? I was handed a $5,700 fine. What? $5,700 fine? $5,700 fine, and they told me my only other option is that they could send me down somewhere in Washington State for a PCR test, and I would have to stay 72 hours. So you have no other legal issues nothing. at the border, nothing? No, 68-year-old grandmother, nothing. <laughs> yep, they've handed me a fine, and it's lodged against my driver's license. It's like an IC, that's how they lodge it. Oh, and the other thing is that I have to take a PCR uh, test, and I'm in isolation until the COVID test comes back. Oh, man. I mean, she's just doing what these politicians told her to do. Uh, it's okay. Go down there and gas up. And then they wh- they whack you at the border. Unreal. Like, do you think, Len, like, what are you hearing on this? Is this just a simple question of, like, somebody didn't get the memo or what? Well, not only did they not get the memo, but they're not watching the news. You know, I'm in Washington mm. State, and I knew all about that. I yeah. don't even live in British Columbia. It's just, it's a lack of common sense. So I'm telling Canadians, if you're going to come down here between now and the 30th next week, print out, you know, Mike Farnworth and Bill <laughs> Blair's announcement so that when you roll up to the border and they try to find you $5,700, you can show them what both the federal and the provincial government have posted online for everybody to see, but apparently the CBSA officers haven't read it. Yeah, unbelievable. And it's not like, um, you know, I mean, how many border crossings are there from B.C. into Washington State? I mean, it's not like they have to notify thousands of border officials here and get everyone straight on this thing. I mean, even if you just talk about, like, what are the main border crossings? Like Peach, Peace Arch? Right. Oh, there's you know, there's Peace Arts, there's Sumas, there's Pacific yeah. Highway, there's Oriole. There's only really four or five main ones. Plus main ones, right? Ones. But you know what's what's crazy here, Mike, is our local gas stations are dying for business. I spoke to one of the local stations yesterday, and they said that since this emergency provisions has happened, they've doubled their business, but they've only gone from like 500 gallons a day to a thousand, so doubling of hardly any business. So they want Canadians to come down here and fill up. There's plenty of fuel down here. Sure. Meanwhile, you have this you know, lack of coordination between the two governments. It's just bizarre. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the troubles at the borders, there are people popping down to get a tank full of gas or maybe buy some groceries, getting uh, ticketed and fined when they come home. The latest from the federal government on this, they're saying they're, they're fixing this now. Uh, the people who did get a fine, uh, their cases will be reviewed they're going to review it. Why don't you just say the tickets are canceled straight up? Make it real easy. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Len Saunders, my guest. Betty in Surrey. Hi, Betty. Oh, hey there. Um, not exactly what you're talking about, but I did go down to Seattle last week uh, okay. when there was still PCR testing that was required. Uh, I booked an appointment at a Walgreens in Bellevue, and I did a drive-through rapid PCR test. Had my results an hour later, free. For free, yeah. I mean, I've heard people. I have heard this. I have heard from people who have said, "Okay, we've heard lots of stories that these tests can cost like two hundred bucks, but some people can get it for free." Len, are you hearing that too? That you can get a free, you can get a free test if you shop around for one. Oh, absolutely. So there's lots of places like pharmacies and. Um, other medical providers who do it for free because they get repaid by the federal government. So regardless of whether you're a Canadian or an American, as long as you have a U.S. address and you can use, you know, a hotel or anything, they're quite happy to do the COVID test for free. Yeah. Okay. Frank on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Frank. Hey, Aurea. Yeah. 
just quickly, I, I traveled through Seattle, but I had to travel, uh, leave the other country I was in three days ahead of time. So to get through to Canada from Seattle, I had to have a PCR test three days, within three days of my last plane I got onto. That right. cost me 160 bucks. I had to fill out the Canada, big rigmarole Canada application process you go through. It takes about 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I had to get my QR provincially, then I had to get my QR federally. Uh, I, I must have spent two or three hours and at least 150 bucks going through the process got to the airport in Seattle where they checked everything. The only thing they looked at was the PCR test. When I arrived in Canada, nobody checked anything. Yeah, thank you for the call. I mean, what a rigmarole people are going through. Len, they are lifting the requirement for the PCR test for short trips across the border, 72 hours or less, but not until, is it November 30th? Is that correct? Yeah, so it's a week today. So that's great yeah. for Canadians who want to come down to the U.S., but it's not reciprocal. So for me, who lives as a Canadian living in the U.S., I still have to have the test if I go to Canada. Oh, so it's only it only applies to Canadians coming back to Canada. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think they should drop that too for everybody? Do you think they should drop it for everybody? Why not? You know, if a Canadian can come down here for seventy-two hours, why can't I go up there for seventy-two hours? Yeah. There, there just seems to be a lack of consistency, lack of common sense, and that's mm. why you hear these stories over and over again and the frustration. Yeah, Tony on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Tony. How you doing, Mike? Good. You know, the biggest problem here is that the governments don't talk to each other, citing privacy. And, you know, I figure if, if one government knows you're vaccinated, then why shouldn't the federal government know also? Let me give you an example. We went down to Palm Springs last month, so you get a PCR test going down. As soon as I arrive down there, I have to get a PCR test so I can come back within 72 hours. I get back, we're at the border, my wife can go through, and I get napped for a random test. And mm. then they tell me I'm at, at the testing place, well, we need your passport. Okay, fine, here, here's your passport. Okay, well, what's your address? I said, do you not have it on my passport? All the info comes up. No, no, we're not connected. Well, why not? <laughs> That's the biggest problem. Okay, Tony, thank you for the call. What do you think of that, Len? Well, exactly. You know, it's interesting because both governments were very good at closing down the border jointly on March the 20th, 2020 at midnight. Why can't they do a joint reopening? I know they share information through the pre-flight clearance agreement. I can see when clients go back and forth over the border by just using their passport and entering in their database online. If I can see going back and forth, why can't these governments work together? Star 9898 is the number to call me on your cell. Star 9898. Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Mike. I'll make this super quick. I went down last week, Thursday to Friday, uh, to see my godson for the first time in two years, which is great. Um, but this, there's something I didn't know. I'm fully vaccinated. I still got COVID, and I'm totally fine. When you cross the border, a positive COVID um, test supersedes the negative PCR test requirement that's directly from the border. So if you've had COVID between 14 and 180 days and you can show that you've had it through a positive test, you don't need to PCR test. The border accepts a positive. Is that, from is, that is that correct, Len? Yeah, so I've heard that from, from many clients. Um, it's not widely advertised by the Canadian government, but here's one other thing. Two weeks ago is when the American government opened, or two weeks ago yesterday is when they opened up the border to Canadians who are fully vaccinated. To this day, 
over two weeks, I've yet to have one client who's entered the U.S. coming in as a Canadian who's been asked if they're vaccinated. The Americans aren't even following what the rules are. Let's squeeze in one more call here. Uh, Dave in West Van. Dave, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hi. The thing here, I mean, it's bad enough not, you know, no communication between the governments, but what has running afoul of a federal government edict got to do with a provincial driver's license? I think yeah, BC and the BC government use our driver's licenses and insurance as a form of punishment for fine payments. The two are I think almost... It's- Thank you. Thank you, Dave, for the call. I just think it's kind of a classic government screw up. This should have been the simplest thing in the world to make sure everyone knew the rules. And it obviously didn't happen. Len, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Talk about the battle in our province now over oil and gas pipelines and continuing fossil fuel development in this province. Environmental activists are ramping up their opposition to these projects now. You may be aware of the blockade of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline Project in northern British Columbia. This one is really heating up. We had multiple arrests there on the weekend, including two journalists arrested there. They were uh, released yesterday. Hundreds of pipeline workers effectively trapped behind those blockades. There is a very large RCMP presence up there, and tensions are running high. Meanwhile, we see increased civil disobedience. Elsewhere in the province and right across Canada, too, for that matter, including protesters blocking roads, highways and bridges to draw attention to their cause. Let's discuss now with our panel. We got both sides of it for you. Mayan Kreitzman on the line. She is a member of the Extinction Rebellion Group, former candidate for the B.C. Green Party, but she does not speak for the Greens. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Mayan, thanks for coming on today. Hey, nice to be here. All right. Also on the line is Kathleen Connolly. Kathleen is the chief executive officer of the Chamber of Commerce in the city of Dawson Creek. Kathleen, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Mike. It's a pleasure. Okay. It's great to have you both back on here again. Mayan, let me go to you first. Can you tell me your your approach on your feelings about these projects? I mean, we see these these pipelines being built in the province. We see the uh, the conflict going up or around the Coastal Gasling Project. We see an activists, including your group, like blocking roads and bridges to, to draw attention to the cause. What is your message to the public here? Why is this so important to you? Well, look, expanding the oil and gas industry in the 21st century is unethical, no matter how you slice it. And you don't need to be some sort of genius to figure that out. Like, even a child understands this, especially after all of what we've experienced last week in D.C. The most effective thing we can do to oppose this pipeline and to fight for a livable planet more generally is to join a movement of people who are willing to take direct action to stop cooperating with Canada and fossil fuel corporations. Okay, and, what, and, and what's... The, the, well, uh, and what's what and people are currently doing that. They're standing against CGL, and the, there's people standing in solidarity with them across the country. And I totally stand with those people that are putting their bodies in the way of the pipeline and of state violence and doing it very vulnerably. They're doing it to protect their own lands, but they're also doing it to protect all of us. Okay, Kathleen Conley, what do you say to that? So it's a really interesting conversation, and you know, I often wonder at the level of understanding around fossil fuels and consumer use and, you know, really how we work towards a transitionary mode. I feel like protesting and really um, the steps that are being taken in the civil unrest, the way I understand it, isn't productive to actually working through 
um, to finding a place where we are eliminating fossil fuels. I don't think anybody argues that we need a greener, cleaner um, planet, but I think the way that we're doing it, it's fundamentally flawed. I think that what we need to do is agree to come together and agree on terms of what actually will move us forward. Protesting about against government we know doesn't work. It is citizens who make those decisions, and right now citizens are deciding to consume fossil fuels an ever-increasing rate. So protesting seems counterproductive. Maybe the answer is, is as uh, citizens in our communities, is that we find ways to, to minimize our use of fossil fuels and the products related to fossil fuels, and in the meantime, create technologies okay. that allow us to continue to, to responsibly extract. Okay, Mayan, Kathleen says the protests don't work. What do you say? Well, that is completely erroneous. I mean, one of the most effective means of changing public opinion and government policy is nonviolent direct action. And, you know, these protests are a direct response to the failure of government policy and the sort of normal means of politics to address these issues. You know, Canada and BC's emissions have not gone down. They've gone up. And so people are escalating um, to using direct action uh, and like civil disobedience and uh, direct action where people put their vulnerable bodies on the line in the way of, of, um, of government power are historically some of the most effective means of actually achieving transformational change. What, what about um, like when you block a road though, or a bridge like, you know, this week in Victoria, for example, we saw the major highway into Victoria was blocked by anti-pipeline protesters, and you had, like, hundreds of cars trapped behind a blockade of a highway. How does that advance your cause? Because it just seems like, to me, like you're just ticking people off and probably driving more people away from supporting you that rather than bringing them to you. Well, I mean, I find it a, a bit ironic. First of all, people can turn their cars off instead of violating. Um, I find it a bit ironic that I've been on this show before because of Extinction Rebellion protests or similar things to what you're talking about. And yeah. this last week, people in BC have experienced a total shutdown of the province because of disasters from the climate crisis itself. I mean, these inconveniences are very minor compared to what we're experiencing because of the actual issue. And we need to connect the dots between the ultimate cause of those frequent disasters and rising greenhouse gas emissions and our contributions to those rising greenhouse gas emissions. Kathleen, Kathleen, what do you say to that? Yeah, that being said, the thing that is rescuing our province and keeping people warm, fed, and watered is the use of fossil fuels. So though the the debate is is that it creates climate change, it's actually what's pulling our province and even our country out of a crisis. Uh, Right now, we see lineups of people waiting for fuel rations. The irony is just too great for me to actually process So if protesters actually want to make a difference, responsibly use fossil fuels in your day-to-day life. Stopping people in the middle of a highway and continuing to allow them to use emissions while you're protesting seems counterintuitive to me. It doesn't seem to make sense. So it might be that we actually find ways for consumers to be more responsible about how they're consuming those fossil fuel products. My guests are Mayan Kreitzman, Extinction Rebellion, Kathleen Connolly from the Dawson Creek Chamber of Commerce. Kathleen, can you talk a little bit about um, people who work in the oil and gas sector in, in your town 
And what would happen, like if, if these pipeline projects were shut down, what would happen to the economy of your town there? Well, you know, I think the reality is is that those pipeline projects aren't going to be shut down. There is um, a law that is is supporting those projects to be completed. You know, I think we've talked about this before, Mike. There's about 12,000 workers in the province of British Columbia who work in the oil and gas industry. You know, it is one of many industries that needs to be as responsible as possible about how we're extracting, how it would affect our community if it, and even all of British Columbia if we stopped extraction tomorrow. It wouldn't work. We would all go into complete chaos. It is a part of how we live our daily lives. So okay. what would we do here? We would struggle. Without a doubt, we would struggle to, to find new employment because we haven't created a green economy yet. So we can't move those employees into jobs that don't exist. Okay, Maya. So the process is to create a, a, those economies, which we're not doing. Maya. Well, I mean, I I agree. Like the, the steps that we need to take to shift to a more sustainable economy are ones that this government has failed to take. But at the same time, we have greenhouse gas emissions reductions targets, which LNG Canada makes it impossible to meet. So, like, let me just share with you some independent research. If LNG, it's just the first phase of LNG Canada is completed, um, by 2050, uh, BC would exceed its uh, greenhouse gas emissions target by 160%. That's if every other sector of the economy emitted zero carbon. And so I'm just saying, like, these projects make BC's emissions reductions target impossible. This is mm. borne out by the fact that the province still has no plan uh, to reduce these emissions from oil and gas. Um, and the billions invested in this industry are really going to be wasted when the demand dries up for what? these things and the whole world is moving before we are to the a reality economy. Is the demand is not drying up. In fact, the demand is increasing. And the reason that producer groups continue to produce is because the consumers are demanding the product. So when consumers decide they no longer want fossil fuels, that's a game changer. Today, right now, we all use fossil fuels in our day. It's a massive part of our day-to-day routines. So when protesters and those who are opposed to uh, greenhouse gases and fossil fuels decide to change their lifestyles and consume less, producers would consume less. So and it's fantastic it is how many people choose to consume less. Econ- it's basic but, economics. But okay, these, Maya, are Maya, policies, these are government policies that drive the consumption. It's A lot the of these choices are not individual consuming. choices that you get no. to make. If I can't afford an EV, I'm going to obviously buy a gas car. That's the only choice I have. But if there's good public transit policy, if there's policies that require that homes be heated using electricity, etc., um, then, then we can make those choices. So these yeah, aren't just about individual choices, it's about government Okay, hang on, hang on, guys. I'm just going to insist you don't talk over each other. Kathleen, why don't, you res- why don't you respond to that real quickly, Kathleen? Then we'll take a break and take some calls. And Okay, go ahead. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, consumers what, what what they want. If we move to electric energy, you know what creates electric energy? Fossil fuels. The deal is consumers and how they want to live their lifestyles. And in the meantime, fossil right. fuels are a massive part of how we live our day-to-day lives. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue debating pipelines and oil and gas development in B.C., Mayan Kreitzman, Extinction Rebellion, Kathleen Connolly, Dawson Creek Chamber of Commerce. And your calls in the open line, there's lots of them, Rick and Kamloops. Hi, Rick, what do you think? 
talking about this David Suzuki there uh, being such a hypocrite, he's been traveling around the world in these airplanes burning up all that fuel, and he travels on a Greenpeace ship that burns diesel fuel every day, all day long. And then everybody that's talking about all this green stuff and the pipelines is the safest way to go because they can be shut off. But everybody that talks on the radio and has their opinion, as such as I, we all burn natural gas and fuel in our cars, and it's just utterly hypocritical that even these conversations okay. are going on. Okay, thank you for the call. Well, Mayan, what do you say to the argument about the, the safety of pipelines, that if you don't move the oil and gas through the pipeline, it's going to be moved by hook or by crook, on a, maybe on a, by rail, which would even even create more dangers of a spill. But your thoughts? Well, you can't move gas on rail, so that's not relevant. And also, this whole premise is flawed because the whole point of planned reductions in greenhouse gas production overall is that these industries wind down, period. It doesn't matter if they're on rail or on this or on that. The whole thing is is uh, doomed, and we need to stop producing and consuming these things. And so, yeah, yeah there's some technocratic issues around what's the safest in the meantime, but eyes on the prize, people. We need to transition to a more sustainable economy. Kathleen, your thoughts? <laughs> And that's a beautiful, that is a beautiful view of the world, but it's not realistic. It just isn't. The entire world right now, it functions on fossil fuels. And so consumers, it is a part of every single day of our life. What oil and gas does and what pipelines do is we try to work to extract it safely clean and efficiently as possible the best regulatory requirements in the world these are the conversations that matter is that instead of saying just stop doing something that's not realistic it's not how it's going to happen let's work together collectively to create technology science and governance that creates uh, a less reductions you know, know i less have to respond to that mike all i really have things, but just Go. to say we're going to shut it off that's just that's crazy talk. Go ahead, Maya. Realistic. Go ahead. Well, I have to respond to that because first of all, there's no such thing as a clean fossil fuel. Methane, i.e., fracked gas, i.e., LNG, they're all the same thing. Is as dirty as coal when you factor in methane leaks, and that has been copiously proven by now by science. And so, like, I just find it strange that people that say nice words as if they want to. Um, support a transition to sustainability. At the same time, they're soft-pedaling the facts on the severity. They support projects that are making the problem worse. And then they spend all their time shitting on people who are challenging the status quo. So I really don't understand how, like, how you can sell yourself off as, uh, like, a progressive climate person or whatnot while that's what you've been spending your time doing in this conversation. Global warming Kat and ecosystem destruction are really serious, and we've experienced that here. Kathleen. And anyone who's trying to soft-pedal those facts or delay the swift action that's appropriate is really going to be on the wrong side of history. Kathleen, what do you say to that? It just, the irony just always blows me away in that, you know, the largest generator, one of the, the, the products that creates more emissions and, and, and more dirty is concrete cement more than anything is concrete the number one and yet 
cities continue to build bridges and infrastructure and demand growth. And that's fine. That seems to be fine. Same as using electric energy. Let's do that. Do you know where steel comes from? It comes from coal. It has to be extracted. These conversations just don't make sense. The reality is, is that right now and how we live and how consumers choose to live is on the off of the backs of fossil fuels. What we need to do is, and I think we all recognize that there needs to be fundamental changes in how we consume energy, okay. for sure. But in the meantime, we continue the steps that we're taking. Push government. I don't have a problem with anybody pushing government to actually complete what they say that they're going to do. Okay, Mayan, I'll, I'll give you the last word there. you got 30 seconds, okay? Well, I think Kathleen and I are in total agreement that we need to change our society so that we actually have a sustainable way of living and, and having good lives. Um, I think we're in disagreement about what that looks like and the, the rapidness of the changes that we need to instigate and, okay. and the theories of change that will make that happen. I want to thank both of you for a, a terrific conversation, and I'm grateful to both of you being here. We had a ton more phone calls there we simply didn't, uh, couldn't get to. All right, just been kind of following the uh, updates there in the throne speech that's happening right now in on Parliament Hill, where Mary Simon, the Governor General, is reading the throne speech. The throne speech in continu- includes promises to improve health care across the country, uh, continue COVID-19 aid supports, tackle the cost of living through housing affordability programs, basically kind of a rehash of liberal election promises from the recent election and the throne speech is being read by mary simon and she's speaking in english french and in anuktitut she is the first indigenous governor general of the country make sure you keep it locked here for developments on that all right let's uh, get a quick weather update now with mark madriga chief meteorologist at global bc hey mark mm. Hello there, Mike. How quick do you want it? A couple minutes? I can go, I can go longer. Let's, let's do it. I'm, I'm kind of kidding. With Give you. me the Coles no, notes. I'm Coles kidding. notes. Yeah, <laughs> you'll get them here. Uh, and then maybe in further uh, broadcasts over the next few days, we'll get a little more in-depth. But uh, yeah, we're, we're looking at two storms out in the Pacific. Uh, today's a beauty, as you can probably see. I think you're still, uh, I forget how it is downtown. You have a window there, and you can see the sunshine, Mike, I'm sure. Uh, so we're at a break today. Uh, nice little high-pressure ridge. It's a bit breezy, but uh, tomorrow we'll have a little rain move in in the latter part of the morning and the afternoon here to Metro Vancouver with that first incoming storm. The heaviest rain tomorrow is going to be on the west side of Vancouver Island in the afternoon and evening. Then tomorrow night it'll pick up a bit in here for rain. It's most of Thursday, Thursday night that looks particularly wet. Vancouver through the lower mainland, other areas too, such as Howe Sound, Whistler, the Sunshine Coast. So uh, storm number one hits us pretty hard Thursday. Ballpark estimates from the computer models look like about 40 to 80 millimeters of rain for Thursday, Thursday night for Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley. I know that's a huge range, but that's typically what we get a lot less near the border and near the mountains, that higher value close to 80. So that's our estimate for Thursday. A little break on Friday, still a chance of rain on Friday, but Saturday's another strong storm. The one on Saturday could be a touch stronger with sort of in that area of 40 to 80 millimeters, maybe even more uh, for Saturday. So you add up the two, and thankfully there's a gap between them on Friday, uh, but you add up the two, and that's, you know, 80 to 160 millimeters for the lower mainland over that uh, three, three-and-a-half-day stretch Thursday through Saturday night. Sunday looks drier, and then next week, it's a long way away, but it looks like a couple more storms will line up mm. and get us. But it's Thursday and Saturday that we're most, most concerned about, Mike. Mark, thank you for the update. Appreciate it.
Keep you posted. Thanks, Mike. All right, Mark Madriga there, Chief Meteorologist at Global BC. This is the situation we're in now with the flooding when a new storm is coming in. Uh, we've got to keep on top of it and give you all the latest information. All right, let's talk about David Suzuki now. Uh, the environmental activist, some people call him an environmental icon, uh, getting lots of complaints and criticism over the comments I'm going to play for you right now. So this happened on Sunday. Suzuki was attending an anti-pipeline rally at the B.C. legislature, and then he said something here about pipelines. Have a listen. This is David Suzuki talking to Czech TV in Victoria. We're in deep, deep doo-doo, and they've been telling us, the leading experts, for over 40 years. This is what we're come to. The next stage after this is there are going to be pipelines blown up if our leaders don't pay attention to what's going on. Okay, there are going to be pipelines blown up if our leaders don't pay attention to climate change and what's going on. These are the comments that has David Suzuki in trouble right now. Is he inciting violence, as some have said, or is he simply stating the facts? Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sankey. Chris is the principal of the Black at Blackfish Enterprises. It's an indigenous relations stakeholder and government affairs consulting company. He's a former elected counselor with Alaxqualam First Nation in Prince Rupert. Chris, it's good to have you on again. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Mike. Much appreciated. Okay, Chris, you are a supporter of oil and gas development in BC, including these pipeline projects. What what went through your mind when you heard uh, David Suzuki say that that you know, these pipelines could be blown up if the government doesn't get in, get, uh, start paying attention to the issues. Well, <laughs> first and foremost, uh, David Suzuki is a grandfather. Uh, he has a grandchild over in the uh, Haida Nation, uh, very great and one of the greatest nations uh, around uh, part of this uh, country. So I don't think uh, he had meant in any way, shape or form to incite violence. Uh, I, I, I get where he was coming from, although I don't agree with his statement because what that statement does to a young academic, a, a, academia that is going to school at UVic or SFU or UBC or somebody just looking in from the outside, they literally take, they take that literally. I've seen yeah. it with the protests on Lido Island. I've seen it with the Pachida. I've seen it with the Wet'suwet'en. And even though I know what he was doing, uh, in my opinion, I think what he's trying to say is that there's a climate crisis happening, and if we don't start doing something now, things are going to start to blow up. I don't think he meant to come in and start swinging the bat and, and try to incite violence to bring harm against anybody. And I don't think, and I'd like to believe, that's not something he would like to leave behind as his legacy for his grandchild or his family. Okay, let me play another couple of clips here from uh, David Suzuki. Chris, for your thoughts. And here is David Suzuki speaking yesterday, asked about the comments once again here by Czech TV in, in Victoria. And you're here, I'm kind of doubling down on his comments here. It's David Suzuki in, in conversation with Czech reporter Tess Van Stratton. Have a listen here. I say what I say. I don't know why you're asking me to, to, to defend it. Okay, so he's saying he doesn't know why he should have to defend saying this, that pipelines could be blown up. Here he is saying that he doesn't regret what he says, and it's been misinterpreted. David Suzuki, again, talking to Czech TV here. No, of course not. I meant it. I said it. I regret that the media would take 
that the context of that article, which is a fine report, and put the headline then that totally slants it as if I'm inciting uh, uh, violence. It's exactly the opposite of what I was trying to say. Okay, I guess his point, Chris, is he's saying, well, I'm actually trying to do the opposite of inciting violence. I, he's, I guess he's saying he's trying to convince government to take the issue more seriously to prevent the, any violence, is what he's saying. But I still, I take your point, though, that a guy of this stature and this, in, this much influence has got to be careful with what he says, because I think a lot of people are interpreting it otherwise. But your thoughts? Yeah, look, he, he is, he's, he's world-renowned. Uh, I mean, I've, I've watched him ever since I was a kid. I mean, with the nature's, nature of things. So, sure. I mean, people take his word at gospel, right? So, like anybody that has influence like that, that amount of power, we have to be super, super careful, in particular him, because there are young adults out there who are literally taking his words at face value. I've seen the uprise. I've seen the violence occur by one simple tweet or one simple statement. Um, I mean, let's go back to uh, the, the, the young lady there that had to, to leave her position when she said, burn it all down when all the churches were on fire. And so people got, went in an uproar and uh, actually encouraged violence. Um, so you've got to be super careful. But, you know, I, I wholeheartedly hope that uh, that's not what he meant. I, I believe that's not what he meant. Uh, I, don't not, I do not agree with his statement. Uh, because it can be extremely damaging. What I'm witnessing, Mike, is these young uh, students that are coming out or still in university and coming out of high school is they're taking these words literally. And I understand that everybody wants to fight climate change. I understand the need. I understand that. I have three children of my own. I want to leave this place whenever it's my time to go in better shape than what it was. And I wholeheartedly believe that's what he truly wants as well for his grandchildren. And nobody wants to destroy the environment on behalf of development. But that being yeah. said, the, there is a lot of uh, misinformation that's being thrown around out there about the energy industry. A lot of blame is going back to the oil and gas sector. If they would just simply do their homework on what our industry is doing to mitigate risk when it comes to the reduction of GHG, hitting target markets uh, so that we can meet the ter- uh, Paris Accord, we're doing am- amazing things. Carbon sequester, uh, carbon capture, introducing wind farms, solar, but all of those in particular are made of petroleum products. So we got to be super careful when we're talking about right. um, climate change and the crisis that we we, we are in. Yeah, it's I think take the energy industry. I, I think Suzuki's comments were were reckless, and I think that he shouldn't have said that because I think you're right. That could be interpreted by some as some kind of incitement. And I don't, I don't think he meant it that way either, but I think, I think it was a foolish thing for him to say. And to hear him kind of doubling down on it too, in a way, uh, made it kind of even worse. Like if you want to know how bad it is, he's, he's being roundly criticized for this. Even, even the David Suzuki Foundation. Okay. So this is a statement from his foundation. It says, when David speaks publicly, he speaks on his own behalf. Not for the David Suzuki Foundation. So even his own foundation are distancing themselves from these comments about blowing up pipelines. Like, I thought it was a ridiculous thing for him to say. Because when you think about 
if something like that ever happened, like if someone actually did something as criminal as that and dangerous as that, I mean, you're talking about a potential environmental disaster. You know, can you imagine an oil spill from an explosion? Like it's even, it, it's even crazy to even contemplate. For so for him to even go there, I thought was very reckless of him to do that. Like, do you think he should have he should have walked that back and made it made it very clear that he regretted saying that? I think he should immediately um, explain what he was actually trying to say. Um, yeah. I, I look, I get it. Look, I, first and foremost, it was a reckless statement. I, yeah. I'm not denying that, but what he should have done is, is explain what he actually meant so that I, I knew what he meant, but there's a lot of people there that don't. And look, I, I've been on the record by saying things that were, that sounded like I was inciting violence. You know, I, I, used, I, I was talking to a friend about this uh, interview coming up this morning. And I remember playing basketball and I remember saying to the guys, I was the captain of the team. And I said, let's go out there and cut their throats and make sure their mothers oh. remember who we are. And I, I don't literally mean that. But right. what I'm saying is let's go out and win this thing for our community and for our people because it was the all native tournament. Right. And let's let us go out there and fight it for the win. But I don't literally mean to incite violence whatsoever oh, yeah. but if i was to say that in some in context and and, and put it out there as such uh, as david suzuki did with those statements i i try i lose my contracts I'll, I'll lose opportunities it's just people take it the wrong way so a person like um david suzuki i i really encourage him you know to to explain what he was actually meaning because a lot of people are actually literally taking his word at face value and that's extremely dangerous Chris, thank you for coming on today to talk about it. I appreciate it. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Justin Trudeau government's uh, long-held promise to upgrade the Canadian Air Force with new fighter jets. Canada has been planning to buy these new fighter jets for some time. The Canadian government right now budgeting between... 15 billion and 19 billion dollars to acquire 88 new fighter jets for the Royal Canadian Air Force and train the personnel to fly the new jets. Not without a fight though. There is growing opposition to this plan. Yesterday in Ottawa, there was a protest uh, held there against the plan to buy fighter jets. Uh, the group no fighter, no fighterjets.ca is planning a week of action this week to oppose the purchase of these fighter jets. Protests are scheduled for across Canada, including in Vancouver and Victoria here in British Columbia. Among the people who oppose the purchase of these fighter jets is, is a long list of celebrities, including rocker Neil Young, Roger Waters, of Pink Floyd fame has come out against the purchase of these jets. Actress Daryl Hannah, uh, Professor Noam Chomsky, also opposed to the purchase of these jets. All right, let's discuss now with my guest. We got a fantastic panel for you. Tamara Lawrence is opposed to the purchase of these fighter jets. She is with the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Tamara, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me again. You bet, Tamara. Also on the line is Matt Gurney, National Post columnist. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. Hey, Tamara. 
Okay, thanks to, thanks to both of you. Tamara, let me go to you first. Can you make the case for against these fighter jets? Why are you opposed to this purchase? This is not a wise use of Canadian tax dollars. So the price tag is $19 billion for 88 new fighter jets. We've estimated the life cycle cost to be $77 billion. Canadians have much more urgent, immediate uh, security uh, concerns, and those relate to the climate emergency, to the pandemic, and to poverty. So uh, British Columbia is underwater. Uh, people have lost their homes. Uh, bridges and roads are underwater. Uh, across the country, we have a housing crisis, and people are still suffering from the impacts of this pandemic. So we believe that the federal government needs to uh, commit to spending on those priorities that will really provide uh, true security for Canadians. And we just don't need new fighter jets. Uh, there is no threat, external threat that Canada faces that requires these fighter jets. We have other tools available, uh, like diplomacy, like international law, to deal any with any kind of international conflict that we have. Okay. Fighter jets are just an old-school uh, 20th century, 20th century uh, weapon system that we just don't need any longer. Okay, okay, Matt Gurney, what do you think? And we see these protests ramping up against this purchase across Canada this this week. You have written about this several times in the National Post. Your thoughts? Uh, you know what? I mean, Tamara had referenced fighter jets as old school 20th century technology. You know what also had kind of a weird fad in the 20th century? The idea that international diplomacy and law was ever going to end the need for war. We tried that between the First and the Second World Wars. I stress again, that was before the Second World War. Look, Tamara raises totally valid points. We have enormous challenges arrayed against us right now, massive ones, some of them in, in, the, in the geopolitical military domain, many of them not. But if there's any meta problem that we as a country face it is that we have the bad habit of letting guard our down uh, letting our guard down not preparing properly for things that are very obvious threats and then being absolutely shocked when these threats manifest themselves without warning military preparedness is not the totality of this argument we can find examples of this in many ways but it's very much part of the problem. What we need is investments in this country and our ability to be resilient across a wide spectrum of threats, housing, climate change, uh, mitigation of natural disasters. All of those are included. So is military preparedness. Tamara, I assume in totally sincere good faith, honestly believes that we have the luxury of picking and choosing which threats we're going to choose to care about. I am under no such illusion. Okay, Tamara, what do you say to that? Well, Canada has a massive, you know, trillion dollar national debt. We cannot afford new fighter jets. We have immediate uh, immediate investments that we need to make, particularly on the climate crisis. And it's particularly because we've spent so much money on militarism and the global war on terror in the past 20 years that 
that prevented us be, from being adequately prepared for the climate crisis. And it's the climate emergency that we need to be spending on and we need to be cooperating with other countries on dealing with the climate crisis. I was just in Glasgow for the climate summit and we need to work with all countries, including China and Russia, in, in dealing with the climate crisis. And so uh, uh, there was an important report that just came out by the uh, Canadian Institute um, for Climate Change on the need for massive investment in this country to make our roads, housing, buildings, rail lines more climate resilient. And that's going to require a huge investment by the federal government. And if we don't make that investment right away, we are facing billions and billions of dollars in in, in, in costs in the future around insurance and trying to rebuild. So we, we need to get our priorities straight. Matt Gurney, your thoughts? I couldn't agree with her more that we need to get her priorities straight. I would encourage her to do exactly that. The notion that militarism, uh, to use her term, has been what has prevented us from, you know, meeting and managing the, the climate change. It's just bonkers. Like, Canadian defense spending traditionally hovers around 1% of GDP. We are a laggard compared to many of our allies. There is no universe in which even a meaningful diversion away from military spending of limited federal resources was going to fundamentally alter the trajectory of this thing. The problem we have, and I'm not looking forward to the bill coming due on this, is that we as a country have shortchanged almost everything. It is very hard to find anything that we have actually funded properly. We got flaky. All the bills are coming due at the same time. And the one, the one thing that Tamara, I mean, there are several things she's wrong about, but a, a significant thing she's wrong about in this context is the idea that we can't afford to. We can afford to pay for all these things. We are blessed as a country to have the fiscal why? capacity to do this. It's hey, Matt. Hurt, but we can do it. Hey, Matt, why, can, you, can you explain briefly why we need these fighter jets? Like when we take a look at the state of our Air Force right now, like why do we need to purchase these jets right now? What would we do with them? Well, I mean, the, the typical roles for fighter jets are fall into two broad categories. One is domestic patrol of our airspace. Given our, our land mass, we have a massive uh, a volume of airspace that we are responsible because of our agreements with the United States. Now, I know Tamara would probably just su- suggest abrogating the agreements, but I think most of us realize that there's no chance that that's going to happen. We owe the Americans some fair share of burden of, of patrolling and defending North American airspace. The other argument, of course, is that we as a country contribute to international missions abroad, which not always, but sometimes require fighter jets. We could decide to stop doing that. I remember last time Tamara suggested we pull out of NATO. There is no political willpower or desire in this country to do that. So long as we're in NATO, I think we are honor bound to show up and do our share. Tamara, what do you say to that briefly? And then we'll fit a break in here. Your thoughts? Well, really, uh, really quickly, I need to correct uh, Matt on the issue of military spending. Canada right now is ranked 13th highest in the world for military spending, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. We are spending about $30 billion annually on military spending. It has gone up dramatically since 2015. That critical uh, Paris Agreement 
that came out uh, for for climate change uh, six years ago. And according to NATO's latest defense expenditures report that came out in June, among all 30 NATO members, Canada's ranked sixth highest in military spending. We have gone from 20 billion in 2015 for military spending. Now, they've just, Canada, the federal government has just reported to NATO military spending of this year to 31 billion dollars. We are spending 1.4 percent of GDP on the military, and it's planning to go up over this crucial decade where we need to start investing immediately. Okay on dealing with catastrophic climate change. All right, welcome back. As we continue our debate on Canada's planned purchase of fighter jets, my guest is, my guests are Tamara Stark, or Tamara Lawrence from the No Fighter Jets campaign, Matt Gurney, National Post columnist, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 in your cell. Steve and Tawasson, hi. Hi, how you doing? Uh, I absolutely agree that we should be spending the money on the fighter jets, no question about it. Uh, when we start talking about climate change, it used to be global warming. The Earth was fi- uh, 50,000 years ago was two degrees hotter than it is today. And I want to ask Tamara, have you turned the gas off in your home? Have you, tur- have you stopped driving vehicles? Have you stopped flying? These are things why, why do you think we should change. buy fighter jets? Let's not, get it, let's not go down to some you know, climate change denial rabbit hole here. Why do you, why do you support the, uh, purchasing the fighter jets? Why do you think that's a good idea? If you, if you believe that you want to play with the big boys with NATO and you want to be around some of the first world countries, you have to take your responsibility to protect your country, protect your aerospace. There's all kinds of things that can happen from hostage taking to flying in a no-fly zone, things like that. So we need to do what we need to do to protect our country. Tamara, what do you say to that? Well, I would like to protect uh, Canadians who are losing their homes, their livelihoods, their livestock, because of extreme weather events that are exacerbated by by global warming. Uh, over the past uh, 150 years, the global mean temperature rise is now 1.1 degrees. And because, because carbon emissions continue to increase in the atmosphere, um, we are facing uh, catastrophic climate change. I mean, global heating of, you know, up to three degrees by the end of the century. And we really need to be concerned about our future generations, about our children and our grandchildren and, and what a warming planet will look like for them. I mean, why, why can't we fight? Degrees, why, why can't we fight? degrees at British Columbia was under a, a heat dome. 600 British Columbians died. You know, people yeah. have, have died in the, in, in, in this but why can't we why can't we fight ago. Tamara why can't we fight climate change and, and buy the jets too why can't, why can't we do both the fighter jet procurement is the second most expensive procurement in Canadian history fighter jets consume an excessive amount of fossil fuel they emit excessive carbon emissions they are going to lock us into five decades of carbon intensive militarism they are going to undermine cooperation with under uh, with other countries they are going to divert okay. precious resources away from our urgent environmental and social matt, needs matt what do you say to that wow that wasn't even close to answering the question you asked you asked the question why can't we do both these things and the answer is we can't i'll go further the answer is that we have to i actually agree with what tamara is saying there about climate change this is the one issue where she and i i think are very much in lockstep everything she is talking about is going to be an accelerator 
of geopolitical instability. It's going to make our world a less safe place. I think we should have the tools on hand as a nation to either look after our own needs or to assist those who are weaker in looking after themselves. Tamara disagrees with that. Okay, her views are on record. Okay, let's go to John on the open line, calling from Vancouver. Hi, John. Mike, I've called in a few times. Well, uh, Tamara is very well-intentioned, but of course she's living in a never-never land. Um, Obviously, I'm not a climate denier in any way, shape, or form, but the fact of the matter is, do you remember the guy you had on, I don't know how long ago it was, a month or two ago, the Chinese and the Russians, Tamara, test our airspace every single day. They test it to see where the cracks are. And we have to have top technology to, to fight these guys. And maybe you might want to talk to Xi Jinping about, about, climate, uh, about climate change, because they don't care. Okay, they Tamara, what do, you, what do you say care. to that? Tamara. Oh, the Chinese absolutely care about climate change. It's affecting them adversely as well, just as it's affecting adversely the Russians. At the Siberian forest, forest uh, was was burning uh, last summer. The the the, the, uh, the worst heat in in Russia ever was last year as well. So just as their boreal forest was burning, so was ours in Canada, and. And China has also experienced uh, terrible flooding and, and drought because of, cli- of climate change. We need to work with all countries to solve this global challenge that we have. Okay. Okay, let me... jets are for fighting and for bombing. And this is something that we need to, to, to stop. We absolutely do not need fighter okay. jets. Matt, I'll let, I'll, we're running out of time, guys. Matt, I'll give you 30 seconds here and then we're, then we're done. Go ahead, Matt. I want to say a word in defense of Tamara, actually, because I think she was criticized unfairly there. Is she living in in fantasy land? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I tend to think she is. But here's the thing. We all are. Canada is a fantasy land. We have all been out to lunch on the major issues facing us as a country and as a planet for generations. I'm totally on board with that. we got to get serious about all these problems. And like I said about Tamara earlier, she thinks we have the luxury of picking and choosing which ones. I think she's wrong.